Hallelujah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Uh, Dixon, I believe. Yes. Sharing this morning of your heart from the Word of God. Appreciate that. I uh, don't think I'm going to say hallelujah as often as you do, but uh, I think you can teach us some things. I think you really can. Also, I think of that song, how we love, watch, and pray for each other. So let us just pause for a word of prayer right at this time. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to you, Lord, that there is a land that we can, uh, we are waiting. The Lord, you're coming back again someday for us. In the meantime, Lord, you have us here. You are taking care of us, and you have a work for us to do. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather together like this. Thank you, Lord, that Dixon could come and share from another part of the world and yet out of the same word. And we pray, Lord, that you would be with each one of us now in this part of the service. That you would bless us and grant us, Lord, your spirit, your grace, and truly your power in our lives. As we open up your word and allow it to speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to welcome the visitors, too. There's some here, and, uh, some that I have not seen for a while. So it's good to see you here. You can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Last message, I expounded on verses 1 to 16. If you remember, you were here. You remember that Paul in this passage has shifted to a different stage from um, this turbulent, troubled church at Corinth. In the first part of the letter, he was responding to reports that he heard. Some unfavorable reports. He heard it from specific people, the household of Chloe. And after addressing a number of them in chapters 1 to 6, in chapter 7, he shifts to answering some questions of a letter that they had written to him. And we don't know exactly what question they asked him because he doesn't, he didn't have a mic and when a question came to him, he repeats the question and gives an answer. He didn't do that. All we know is he answered the question so we have to assume what the questions were. It's like someone said, it's like hearing the one side of a phone conversation. But God didn't think we needed to know those questions exactly or he would have told us. We have that confidence in God. But neither do we have the, exactly the unfavorable reports that came to him from Chloe. Paul was hearing a lot of negative things about this church. You remember, he started the church, and then he left. And several years later, he's hearing a lot of things coming. People are coming from Corinth. It's interesting, Corinth is in Greece. And the time Paul wrote this letter, he's in what is called modern Turkey. The Aegean Sea is between them. 
It's interesting. Just a thought. Just a thought here. But here are some of the things that Paul was hearing in First Corinthians. I'll just read here. He's uh, he's beseeching them that they speak the same thing, thing and there be no divisions. And he says, "For it has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you." A report. Not a good one. In chapter 5, he writes another report he heard. He said, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. Reported commonly. I'm not quite sure what that means. I didn't study that one out, but it seems to be known. And then, in, in uh, chapter 11, verse 18, he says, I hear that there be divisions among you. Now, that would be sort of a repetition of what he heard there in chapter 1. Someone from the household of Chloe came from Corinth over to Ephesus and reported to Paul the different things that were happening in the church. The, 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 the problem the church were they had divisions over leaders, they had immorality in their midst. They had lawsuits. They had the abuse of the Lord's Supper. They had the misuse of spiritual gifts. And they had the misbehavior of women in the public meetings. Did you ever have someone come to you and unload such a big load on you? I mean, they came to Paul and they unloaded. Wow. Did you ever go to a church leader and just dump on him like that? It's no wonder Paul, later on in Second Corinthians, when he said, I'm acting like a fool, he said these words. And he, and, he, and he enumerated all the difficulties he went through as a Christian, as a missionary. He went through a lot of difficulties. And then he also said, and besides all those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches or the daily pressure of his anxiety for all the churches, and Corinth being one of them. If you want trouble, Dixon, if you want trouble and anxiety and difficulty, be a missionary and start a bunch of churches. That's what Paul did. And he had a lot of care of all those churches. So we could raise the question, is it okay to report negative things to somebody when they're not there? They're at the Corinth church. They came over to Paul and they talked about him. <laughs> is that okay? What do you think? Talk about other people's faults and sins when they're not present. Proverbs 26.20 says, Where no wood is, the fire goeth out, and where there is no tailbearer, the strife ceases. So that would seem like the answer to the problem is to say nothing. But we know that's not the answer many times. We know that's not the answer. If you know some things that are going on, I think especially of, you can just use one, of abuse of children. And you know what's going on and you say nothing. 
you are a very, you're complicit to the problem. If you know something's going on that shouldn't be going, it is wrong. It is actually horrible to remain silent and not be a talebearer. Under God, you don't need a law to expose something like that. Now, if that's true in the case of a child, surely it is true in the case when God's law is being violated by the saints of God. When God's people are acting in unbecoming ways, when God's glory is being tarnished by his people, and the well-being of his people are jeopardized, surely it is proper to relay it to the proper people who have a right to know and can do something about it. It has to be right to do that. And that's what the household or the people from Chloe did. The people from Chloe were so troubled that they gave Paul a detailed report detailed about this seemingly spirit-filled, dynamic, gifted church. Probably from a distance, this church looked like a vibrant spiritual church. It probably did from a distance. I stated in the last time that the church at Corinth had wrote Paul a letter asking him a number of questions. In chapter 7, he began to answer those questions. These were questions that the church at Corinth wanted answers for. So they asked the Apostle Paul, they did what we can't do. They asked the Apostle. It was questions about marriage, eating food offered to idols, and about spiritual gifts. But what is interesting, in fact, what is amazing, is apparently in that letter there was no mention made of the most egregious problems in the church. As far as we know, there was no mention in that letter about the fornication in their midst or about the lawsuits. Now, isn't that so much human nature? That's why I like about the letter. Like about it? Yeah. It relates to me. This letter to the Corinth just, is just like today. So here they have some questions, but it takes someone else to come through with the real issues of the church. They didn't bring it up. Okay, let's go to the text this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'll read verse 17 to 24. But as God has distributed to every man, as the Lord called every one, so let him walk. And so ordain I in all the churches. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Ye are bought with a price, be not ye the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God.
What does this passage here have to do with us today? Well, we're going to find out. But one thing we know for sure right off the top. Paul says, what I teach here, I teach everywhere. He says that. So I ordain in all the churches. So this little passage here, whatever he's teaching here, he teaches everywhere. That word ordain is a strong word. It simply means command. So command I in all the churches. This is the direction he gives in all the churches. So two things come out of my mind immediately. First, what is he instructing in these verses? Second, if Paul is teaching this in all the churches, why didn't I ever teach out of this passage? I don't think I ever taught out of this passage. And Paul says, I teach this to all the churches. Well, before we get too hard on myself or anyone else, if he teaches in all the churches, what is taught here is also taught elsewhere. We can assume that. So, what is the import of what he taught? And where would that be found elsewhere in his writing? Is any man called being uncircumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is anyone uncircumcised? Let him not become circumcised. In case anyone is wondering here, when you mean about someone being called, it means becoming a Christian. Especially a first-generation Christian. I know we're all first-generation Christians, okay. But in a sense, there is a real first-generation Christian. And back then, that's all there was. First-generation Christians. So when they were called, they were in all over the place. They were not in Christian homes. All over the place. So, what should it do? Should a Jew become a Gentile? Should a Gentile become a Jew? Should there be a major upheaval in your social order when you become a Christian? We just got done in the last message addressing the issue Suppose there is one spouse who is a believer, and you have one spouse who's not a believer. Should you break up the marriage? And Paul says, no, you do not do that. So now he's simply expanding the principle. You should not, unlike Luke Eby, who I mentioned before, who thought that when you become a Christian, you immediately quit your job and you become a full-time missionary. That's not what God is calling us to. Now, other people may react to you becoming a Christian if you are a first-generation Christian. This happens all the time in Muslim countries and Hindu countries and Catholic countries. (laughs) That people around a Christian becomes a Christian, they react. And so, so there is that major change. But it should not unnecessarily be initiated by the new believer. A statement I got from somewhere says this, the transforming power of the gospel does not turn anyone into a discontented revolutionary. The transforming power of the gospel does a lot of things, but it does not turn you into a discontented revolutionary. 
immediately, anyhow. <laughs> of course, if you have an ungodly occupation or an unsanctioned marriage or you're living with somebody, you need to make major changes right away or as soon as possible. And there will be significant lifestyle changes likely as a new Christian begins to grow in the faith and understand what the call of God actually is. On Wednesday night, when I sought the discipleship class, I said that becoming a Christian is like John D. Martin used his illustration many times. When you sign a contract, before you sign a contract, you read the, all the terms of the contract before you sign your name to it because you don't want to sign your name to something and you don't know for sure what you're signing to. But to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ means you sign your name at the bottom of this contract, but Jesus hasn't filled it in yet. And so, as a new Christian begins to grow, changes become into their life. But it's not an immediate societal upheaval. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. In context, it does not matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile. If you are a Gentile, you don't need to become a Jew or vice versa. Why is that? Because circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. That does not count at all in God's kingdom. And if you go down the road... Down the down the passage there, it doesn't matter if you are a slave or if you are a free person. That in God's sight, that does not matter. If you can be free, take it. And the reason is given: you are bought with a price. Be ye not the servants of men. But I actually will not get to that verse this morning. What I'm going to focus on or zero on this morning is circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But the keeping of the commandments of God. Yes, Paul did teach that elsewhere. Galatians chapter 5. In Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Galatians 5.15. I'm sorry. 6.15. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. So those are the texts that I will actually read this morning. And I have a title. It is called Ritual versus Reality. Ritual versus Reality, or you could have it Forms versus Character. But Ritual versus Reality. What I want to do this morning is examine the value and the valuelessness of form and ritual and tradition. The benefits and the limitations of custom and form. Because even though the issue today is not what it was back then. Back then it was circumcision, it was Jew, Gentile. We don't have that today. We do not face that here at all. But human nature, being what it is, always keeps remaking things, and today we have the same thing back then in a different form. So the pertinent issue at the beginning of the church was the Judaizers and keeping the whole body, whole law of Moses, but we don't need to talk about that. 
So, we have, we have the same issues today in a different form. And in fact, it has been a perpetual issue in the church ever since the beginning. And so we're going to ask for, for what are rituals? What are rituals? Rituals are... Rituals varies from a strong, habitual way of doing an activity to a prescribed observance or a protocol. It is mostly religious in nature, but not completely. Any practice or pattern of behavior regularly performed in a set manner can become or is a ritual. So, on the light side of rituals, I have a regular morning ritual. You might too. When I get up, I do a regular, normal pattern of things. I have a habit, a ritual. And I do that on purpose because I don't want to be thinking every morning what I'm going to be doing. I want my mind to be free to think on important things. And so I, the ritual's in place and I can do things by habit without thinking about it. I'm not going to tell you all what all my rituals are. You can ask me later this afternoon, a Sunday afternoon discussion. But I function best when I have good established habits. On the opposite end of a light ritual like that is, I think, of Eldon. Went to New York City with his students and they toured a Catholic church. And... Eldon thought he could go up, since they were serving Mass, he thought he could go up and get a wafer and take it home as a souvenir. And he found out that this is a ritual and you don't do that. You do not violate this ritual. He soon discovered that they have a prescribed observance and you do not take that thing home with you. Our lives are surrounded with rituals, both social and religious. When two people agree on a business deal and they shake hands to it, that's a ritual. When a man opens a door for a woman, car door, other door, that's a ritual. Shaking hands and greeting is a ritual. The Christian greeting is a prescribed ritual. Coming here on a Sunday morning at 8.45 is a ritual. Coming here at 9.05 for some is a ritual. So is the whole order of the service that we have. Our communion service, our weddings, our funerals, any practice or pattern or behavior regularly performed is a ritual. So the question before us is not that the ritual is good or bad. It just is. Rituals are. Just Paul said, some Christians are circumcised, some are not. It just is. But that's not the point. That's not the issue. That's not the focus. 
Keeping the commandments of God is the focus. Being a new creature is the point. Faith, which worketh by love, is the real issue. So, for our first point, we're going to look at the limitations of rituals or externals. There are limitations to rituals and externals or practices. Those two businessmen who shook hands after that business deal, how much power is in that handshake? How much power is there in two sweaty Jeremy palms getting together with their fingers and going up and down a few times? How much power is in that? Where is the seat of power to make that business deal happen? Is it in the handshake? No. Is it not in the character of both men? The handshake is a visible token of that agreement that had happened in their hearts. It's a symbol of promise made by those two individuals. So we can rephrase the verse. Participating in a handshake is nothing and not participating in a handshake is nothing. But integrity of character. Now, it's not wrong to shake hands. In fact, it's a good thing to shake hands. That actually, well actually when it comes to me, I need more than a handshake. May I tell you that? But it's not for the reason you think of. I have done different business dealings, and I, my memory is bad. I like it in paper. <laughs> I know <laughs> what's due when. So I like it on paper. But the point is, handshake is a good way to finalize the thing. It's a good thing, but it has its limitations. How about opening a car door for your wife or your special other? Does that prove that you love her? If you don't open the door for her, does that prove you don't love her and value her? Or do you show her love in other ways? Like buying her flowers. Or fixing the leaky faucet. Or washing the kitchen floor. Or giving her a back rub. Is it possible for a husband to treat his wife royally in public and ignore her needs and treat her like dirt at home behind closed doors? Is that possible? In this case, we could say that opening the car door is nothing and not opening the car door is nothing, but a consistently true heart of compassion and love. Now, at some point, some of you guys are going to be ready to throw me out. Say, what does he mean? Opening the car door means nothing. I mean, I can go out in the dark and the cold and the rain. I go over there and open the door and it means nothing. It means a lot to me and it means a lot to her. So there. Well, what I'm saying is opening the door is largely a sim- symbolic in nature. Largely. Not altogether, largely. In time, 
it can become a bare ritual. Just something you do out of habit. Maybe even after you had an argument in the car before you opened her door. So in comparison to the real thing, it is nothing. We have rituals galore. We can't live out them. In fact, I don't even recognize all that we have. I just go in my mind and thinking. And they are not necessarily bad. In fact, many times they are very good. We start our services ritualistically at Oasis with what we call worship, singing, the worship service. We wouldn't have to. There's not a place in the Bible where it says you have to start your service with singing. There's no nothing in there like that. But we do. It's a ritual we have. We have agreed on it. It's a good thing. But the reality is what? Worship. That's the reality. A singing voice with a worshiping heart. That is reality in worship. Without reality in worship, whatever you're doing is nothing. Without reality of worship in your singing, your singing is nothing. Worship. Opening up your heart to God. Appreciation for what he has done for you, is doing in you, and the hope and the confidence you have of what he's going to do for you in the future. And so you reflect on that and you worship. And your heart renews its purpose in surrender to love and labor for the master. A heart that yearns for the day when faith becomes sight and we can hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. A singing voice with a worshiping heart, that is reality in worship. Now here's a word of caution. Just because you experience worship in certain ways does not mean everyone else experiences worship in the same way. Some people get more exuberant when they worship. Other people get more reflective when they worship. It's interesting. Be careful. Some become noisier. Some become quieter. And just because someone is whooping and hollering in worship does not mean he's actually genuinely worshiping. True worshipers, Jesus said, worship me in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking those worshipers. We have another ritual here at Oasis. On a Sunday morning, we get several brethren up front here and share the word of God with you. That's a ritual. At Dixon first, me next, had a couple other things. Is that a good ritual? Would it be a good thing if we stopped doing that? Instead, we're going to have a new ritual. We're just going to gather in a big circle and we're going to share a Bible passage and everybody shares what they think it might mean. Or they might just share where they are in their journey of faith and we have another ritual. No preaching, no teaching, 
no monologue like I am. I didn't ask enough questions, right? Or say hallelujah often enough. Just dialogue. Most of us say, well, no, no, we don't want to change the ritual of preaching. We don't want to change the ritual of preaching to an informal storytelling. And that's right and good. James says, Receive with meekness and grafted words which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. So, the ritual is the preaching. The reality is the doing. Doing the word of God is the reality. And God says the man who sits in an emerging church service and listens to a storytelling, and doesn't hear any preaching, if he obeys God, he is way ahead of you, if you are here and you listen to the word of God, you hear it preached, and you don't do it. Because the preaching is not what counts. It's the doing. That's not to say that we should change our ritual. Paul told Timothy to preach the word. Part of the charge given to me is to preach the word. It is good and necessary that when you come, that you come and hear preaching. But it has its limitations. The limitation sticks with each one of us. I'm going to read in Luke chapter 13, verses 24 to 27. Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and has shut the door, and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, and saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer and say unto them, I know not whence you are. Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I do not know whence you are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There was the Lord Jesus preaching. And it didn't affect everyone. So, when you come right down to it, the ritual is nothing. The doing is everything. We are quite ritualistic in how we dress, are we not? Our belief in God and his word determine a lot what we wear. Why we wear it. And on whom we wear it. We have clear gender distinctions. We dress modestly to protect ourselves and the opposite gender. And we avoid showy and bold Fatty's clothing, lest we exhibit a proud or worldly spirit. We all know that God resists the proud, so we avoid clothing that exhibit the glitz and the glamour that the world thrives on. All is good and well. Hallelujah. (laughs) But back around again. Do conservative and modest clothing 
guarantee true humility and true modesty. Remember, we're looking at the limitations of rituals and externals. Limitations of a set way of doing things. There is no inherent righteousness in doing things a certain prescribed way. Nor is there any inherent unrighteousness in doing certain things a certain way. Prescribed things. They're just a way of doing things. Some ways exhibit more wisdom than other ways. But for right now, that's not the point. That actually could be another message. Paul explains it so well in his letter to the Romans, and you could turn there, if you wish, Romans chapter 2. He explains about the inherent or the lack of inherent righteousness in doing certain things. Romans chapter 2, verses 25 to 29. He says, For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy uncircumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not the uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision doth transgress the law? For he is not a Jew, who is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Simply put, it is not in the letter means not only keeping outward rituals or outward observances. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life is another way to put it. The letter tends to bring the praise of men, but the spirit brings the praise of God. Now, before you throw me out, I'm at the one side. I'm talking about the limitations. We'll get to the other side sometime, okay? So let's give me time. Well, it's about time to bring that side out now. Some, some were saying that circumcision is a must. Others were saying that uncircumcision is an ideal. Some today say the letter is a must. Others will say the letter is bad. The spirit is all you need. You know, there are two ends of the stick here. So the person who says all ritual is bad and needs to be eliminated is as much in error as the one who hangs on to the letter or to the ritual and misses the spirit. There's two ends to this. What would this look like, holding on to the other end of the stick now? Well, someone emphasizing the spirit would say, would say or practice this. There's different ways that this is done, but this is definitely one way. He said, just be honest. Just be real. Keep things spontaneous and fluid. No ritual. No ritual. Eliminate most or all traditional or scheduled ways of doing things. Don't ever do anything just because it's the right thing to do. No, I'm sorry. 
don't ever do anything just because it is the right thing to, lest you do it out of duty and not out of spirit and thereby be a hypocrite. Don't do it if you can't do it from your heart. And that free, spontaneous, open, come-as-you-are atmosphere is marketed as true spirituality. Is it? I'm not sure. No, one, no, one, no one's shaking their head yes or no here. I'm not sure what you... Maybe I didn't make it clear. What do you think? Is that free, spontaneous, open, come-as-you-are True spirituality. No. No more necessarily than someone who holds on to the ritual and does not possess the reality. Because it's just another. Let me say it. There is no inherent righteousness in ritual. There is no inherent righteousness in spontaneity either. Did you know that? Ritual brings restraint. Spontaneity brings impulsiveness. Just as there is no inherent goodness in opening the car door every time for your spouse, neither is there inherent righteousness in opening a door only when you feel like it. So, when she does something nice for you, and you feel really good about it, you open the door. But when she did something that irked you, you don't. Now that's really spiritual. What about the apostolic injunction, doing all things indecently and in order, in comparison to spontaneity? So, ritual, not bad. Ritual, good. That's limitation. So, the answer... To the letter killer problem is not to kill the letter. The answer to the letter the letter killeth problem is not to kill the letter. Think about that. The letter killeth, but the answer is not to kill the letter. But that's what we often see happen. It's an honest but very ill-advised solution to the problem. The answer is to worship in spirit and in truth. To have the reality of the letter. So we're looking at the limitations of rituals and practice of traditions. And of course we have them. It's when we replace the life in which they be... It's when we replace the life that it becomes a stench to the nostrils of God. So, what is the true place for ritual and tradition and practice? And I'm going to see, yeah, I think we'll get done before too long here. Alexander McLaren says this. He said, they have their value. Talking about ritual and tradition and practices. As long as we are here on earth, living in the flesh, we must have outward forms and symbolic rites. It is in heaven that the seer saw no temple. 
But our sense-bound nature requires and thankfully avails itself of the help of external rites and ceremonials to lift us toward the object of our devotion. A man prays all the better if he bow his head, shuts his eyes, and bends his knees. That form helps him. The form is not the answer. Forms do help us to the realization of the realities and the truths which they express and embody. They may be helps toward the appreciation of divine truth and to the suffusion of the heart with devout emotions which may lead to building up of holy character. So forms and rituals are the helps. Our manner of dress our style of music, our order of service, our structure of home life, our structure of church life, our greetings, our fellowship meals, the meals that we give to the sick, our monthly youth activities, and the ministries we have, on and on and on we could go. We have many forms and normal practices. They are to be helps for us. And as helps, they are a blessing. It's when we elevate them to a status of measure of spirituality that they become a problem. When you take a help, take a ritual, and you elevate it higher than a help, and it becomes a measure of your spirituality is when it becomes a problem. Or, if we just practice the rituals without a spiritual heart. In that case, our practices become nothing. Nothing at all. They avail nothing at all. Without the faith, which works by love. That ritual that you do works nothing at all if you're not a new creature. It does nothing at all without keeping the heart commandments of God. That's actually the same thing that the Old Testament say. It is better to obey than it is to sacrifice. Remember that? That came from Samuel when he was talking to Saul, and he got cut it right down to the core. That it's better to obey than it is to do sacrifice. It is better to keep the commandments of God than to just do a ritual, even a commanded ritual. Over the years... I have heard much frustration with conservative churches. They are so lifeless. They only care about outward things. As long as you look right, you're okay. They're not interested in reaching out. I have made all those statements myself, plus a lot more. I have. And what's the answer? Or if we could say revival, that'd be a good one. Is it not a spirit-filled church made of new creatures that in reality keep the commandments of God? Full faith that works in love and the rituals and the practices that are godly and accommodating to that end? They are not the life itself. The rituals are the framework, a skeleton on which 
the life of Christ can be built on the life in reality. Be careful. I didn't think that statement over because you have only one foundation, which is Christ. Maybe I have to retract that one. We'll talk about that one later. When you put off some cultural practices that you deem as unnecessary in God's sight, be careful about two things. So you have some rituals that think, you know, I'm not sure if this ritual is actually helpful. We're going to quit it. We're going to change it. I'm going to go to another church that doesn't do these things. The two things I want you to think about. First of all, if you stop, if you put off one cultural reality, you're going to adopt another one. You're going to adopt another one in its place. Is it godly or is that neutral? And a second, if you have an attitude of, I don't need that ritual, and you have the attitude of the poor, the people who still do, then you have the exact same attitude at that Pharisee in the temple. If you think, ha, those poor people back there, they're still doing that. And you have the same attitude at the Pharisee in the temple. I'm going to be one example in closing here, which I think is neutral enough that it will not hurt anyone. We have segregated seating on Sunday mornings here. That's been a perpetual tradition for many of the people here ever since your childhood. For many of you, that's been your tradition. Suppose we decide to eliminate segregated seating. It's just a tradition. We don't see any value in it. Other churches don't. So, should we change it? Just using an example, okay? Well, good and well if you want to change it, but be careful. First of all, as an example, you're going to adopt some other cultural practice in its place. And in this case, it's a cultural practice of, of um, what's the opposite of segregated seating? Mixed seating. Mixed seating. Okay. So that's a cultural practice, mixed seating. Okay? Fair enough. And it's a cultural practice of almost all the churches in the United States and Canada who have made that switch, by the way, generations ago. The modern culture, which has been and is still pulling down the reserved between the genders. And not just the reserve between the genders, but is actually working to eliminate the distinction of the genders altogether. That's what culture is doing. Is that godly or is that neutral? Or is that ungodly? I guess you get three examples. That's not neutral. That doesn't mean that if someone changes the seating from segregated to mixed, it's being ungodly. Not to say that. It's just, it's why 
we need someone in our midst like Brother John who looks down the road further than most of us do and sees things further. That's why I appreciate John for many times over the years. He does that. Because it's not completely neutral. Not completely. Has an effect. The second attitude is, second, if you have an attitude of, I don't need that segregated seating, that's archaic. Pity the poor people who still are there. I'm glad I'm free from that bondage. Then you have the same attitude that the Pharisee did in the temple. The very one you despise. Segregated seating is a, sim- is a, is a tradition. We do it here because it eliminates completely boy and girl relationships. We do it here because it completely eliminates all, all lust, all pornography. It eliminates all issues between the sexes and all broken hearts and relationships. And it, that's, that's why we do it. Or am I lifting something higher than it should be? I am. That was sarcasm. We need to understand that the things we do have their limitations. But we do them for reasons. In conclusion, and here is the concluding statement. All form is like fire. All ritual is like fire. This is uh, that man that I quoted earlier. I can't think of his name. He said, all form is like fire. It is a good servant, but it is a bad master. And it needs to be kept very rigidly in subordinate ordination or else the spirituality of the christian vanishes before men know and they are left with their dead forms which are only evils crutches which make the people limp by the very act of using them i'm going to try to read it again all form is like fire it is a good servant but it's a bad master and it needs to be kept very rigidly in subordination or else the spirituality of the Christian vanishes before men. Know it. And then they are left with their dead forms, which are only evils, crutches that make people limp by the very act of using them. Ritual versus reality. Rituals have a place, but they must never, never take the place of reality. May God bless you.